To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's up, guys? I got a brand new Eastman's Elevated podcast for you. So this week on the podcast, I'm releasing my conversation I had with Guy Eastman. So this is uh, back when I visited the Eastman's office there mid-December, and we sat down and we kind of talk over application strategies. Um, Guy is just an absolute wealth of knowledge. He's been doing this a long time in the magazine and then also living the lifestyle, traveling around and hunting these different places. And he just knows antelope and mule deer and elk um i swear it's weaved in its dna uh he's just really fun to talk to about this stuff and and i know i learned a lot and i'm sure you guys will too um so so just an absolute pleasure to sit down with guy and a great conversation as we're all starting to think about our application strategies and which states we want to hunt uh this this is just great knowledge for all of us guys so you guys will enjoy today's show um we're sponsored today by yeti coolers um, Yeti is just a, an unbelievably awesome company. They're sponsoring the podcast in 2018. And uh, I've been using their coolers now for a couple of years, and and uh, you've heard me say it before, but they're just game changers. Uh, definitely keep ice longer where you can stay out and you don't have to run back to convenience stores to, to fill up your coolers full of ice. Just got back from this Arizona hunt, and uh, it's 75 degrees every day, and I filled that thing up with ice uh, when we left, and I never touched it again, and it still has ice in it now as it's sitting in my garage. Uh, I still got to unpack it. Isn't that the way it goes? But uh, Yeti is just just an awesome company. Um, you know, the, their coolers perform uh, better than any other cooler on the market. Uh, they also, I always add this in there, that it's a bear-proof container when you put a lock on it. So it's got a place for a lock, and then it counts as a, as a bear-proof container uh, in the national forest when you're camping, which most western states, when you're camping, you can't have a cooler in the back of your truck unless it's a bear-proof container. So the Yeti counts, so you don't got to hang your food up in a tree if you're truck camping. You can just leave it in your cooler, lock it up, and it's a bear-proof container uh, uh, you won't get in any, any trouble with the law, and you also won't get in any trouble with any grizz bears. So um, that's a great thing that Yeti does. They also just have a, a bunch of products in their line. Um, I recently just got a new thermos my sister bought me for Christmas. I think it's a 32-ounce thermos. Um, but, but it's just an awesome thermos. Uh, I used it on this coos hunt would make my coffee and then stick it in my pack. And then we'd hike an hour or two to the vantage point and I'd break it out. And, uh, it still almost burned my mouth when I broke it out. It just really keeps stuff hot for the entire day and really looking forward to using that. Uh, my next trip is for uh, steelhead fishing, uh, out on the Olympic peninsula where it's rainy and cold all day. So I can't wait to throw that thermos in. Uh, I'm also using their cups. Um, cups keep my coffee warm all day long on the job site or wherever I'm at, but um, just an awesome company, and uh, thanks to them for their support on Eastman's Elevated. Um, over there at Eastman's, you guys be on the lookout. Uh, every year, Guy does a uh, an elk re- a review for Wyoming. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, so this one, he picks his top five Wyoming elk hunting spots. Um, Guy doesn't hold any information back. He really tries to put out the best information out there. And and, and me sitting on with points, um, you know, uh, I'm excited for this top five elk units to come out to see which ones he picks as he follows, you know, current trends. These aren't just the, the, the units that have historically always been good. He picks the top five for this next season under the conditions, the winter we're having, and so on. So, uh, be on the lookout for that. It'll come out in uh, email form, or you'll be able to find it on the Eastman's Hunting Journal website, uh, eastmans.com. So, um, with that, let's get this thing rolling. Really fun conversation with Guy Eastman, uh, super knowledgeable, um, just a, a great back and forth here about applications and where we want to apply. So, um, enjoy it. Here we go. Eastman's Elevated. Okay, I'm over here at the Eastman's office. I'm sitting down with Guy Eastman today. Guy, thanks for being on. Hey, thanks for uh, having me, Brian. Mm-hmm. Congratulations on your season. I saw a nice six-point come across my feed there at some point. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, we had a, 
had a pretty good fall. It was kind of start off slow and then picked up as the fall went on. It was uh, kind of a weird year. It was strange, wasn't it? Yes. We got snow early, and then we never got any weather, or at least there in Montana. We didn't get any weather there late at all to, to move those elk around. But early, it moved them into just strange places where they normally aren't, and a lot of them started their migration early, it seemed like. Yes, we got snow in September that we normally don't get till November. I mean, we usually get a skiff of snow in September, a couple inches, and then it you know, melts off. But it came up high, and it stayed like feet of snow uh, up high. And it, it pushed a lot of the elk out of the wilderness early in September when usually they don't come out until October, end of October, first part of November. So it really kind of mixed the deck on us, and it was a, a really odd year. Yeah, it um, it moved them a lot to their uh, moved them to their winter range way early, and then they were in their winter range during bow season. And we were able to get dialed in on them pretty good and um, able to to take advantage of it. But I, you know, a lot of the spots where I typically find elk, you you couldn't find an elk in there. They were they were just in strange places. But uh, yeah, you were able to capitalize. I saw that nice six point you harvested. Yeah, yeah, we got a good bull. You know, uh, Dan went in with me. Of course, he was done bow hunting uh by the time i got back here from my trips in colorado and everywhere else it seems like it was october and, and it stays open till i think 22nd of october or so and i hunted middle of october and he helped me out you know uh we kind of tag teamed it with uh dan me and one of the film guys and i think i shot the 13th six point bull we saw in, in three or four days so we finally started to find them but they you know i've hunted dairy a lot and it it's my old honey holes, but, uh, you know, those spots that always seem to have elk like clockwork didn't have any this year, and, and we had to ended up find elk in different spots mm -hmm. than we normally do. So it was just a weird year, a yep. weird year. They were there. They just weren't where they normally are, you know. Mm -hmm. 13 six points. That's good yeah, hunting. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good hunting, pretty good hunting. I never saw any giants. I did see a giant in there in bow season before I went on all these trips, but I, I couldn't find that bull. I could not find turn that bull up. I figured he either would have gotten killed or I could have found him, and, and I don't think either happened. I don't think anyone shot him. He's a, probably 370s, which is a big bull for Wyoming. Oh, yeah, big, big bull, bull big for anywhere. Point. Yeah. 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 Those things, they're just, they're good at finding those pockets of country where they're tough to locate and tough to see. And, and elk are always elk, but they'll tighten up their programs, and it just seems like they start uh, almost running nocturnal unless the cold forces them to feed in that later season. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes, you know, a big bull like that in a public land area that gets hunted, you kind of almost need something out of the ordinary to kick them off their normal routine, something to to move the odds a little in your favor, you know, uh, a big storm front or, you know, something, a late rut or, or something to, to kind of get them off. Cause they get so smart, you know, and there's, that's big country and it's, there's plenty of places they can, can find where it's really tough to find them or get in on them. Yes, absolutely. I hunted, um, used to hunt bulls. I, I love that late season hunting with a rifle. In Montana, we have that general season where you can hunt, you know, nearly the entire state besides a few different units. But uh, yeah, I used to love that season. But I'd find bachelor herds of bulls that I'd hunt. I remember this one, seven bulls, and there was one great big one in there and then a couple 320 bulls that are also good shooter bulls. And I remember I hunted them for a week straight and they'd cross in the moonlight and they'd cross in the dark um, at morning and then in the evening you, you just didn't have a window to shoot them and then finally we got a cold snap and they made a mistake and they came up a half an hour late in the daylight and we were able to to bust a couple nice bulls dad and I but they just run such tight programs they don't show themselves much you know unless you get something to shuffle the deck like the weather you're saying or a little late rut um, they just know human pressure they, they know that there's predators out looking for them, and they just uh, run a really tight program, it seems. Yeah, I think they know that the, when the rut's happening, there's hunting happening as well, and they were a satellite bull for a few years and watched a herd bull get hammered or whatever and got real smart real fast. You know, the dumb ones end up being killed as, as satellite bulls, and the smarter ones just get smarter and smarter. And, and you, you're right, you need something to kick them off. You know, sometimes it can just be a cloudy day, and those bulls end up, you know, not noticing the sun coming up because it's cloudy and go, uh-oh, I've seen them do that. All of a sudden, one day it's cloudy and they 
get stuck out in the open later than normal, just one hour later than normal, and that's enough. That's all you need, mm-hmm. you know, to make a stock on them or, or an ambush and get them killed, whereas normally they're just nocturnal. Yeah, and you just keep putting in your time day after day. That's all you can do and hope yeah. you catch that day where they make a mistake. And, yeah, you mentioned the rut and those older bulls. Um, they get pretty smart during the rut, too. They, I, I found a lot of times the herd bull won't stay with the herd. He'll come down and breed cows at night, and then he'll go off by himself and go disappear into a timber patch and leave those smaller bulls with the herd of cows. So, yeah, they they get pretty wise in their old age. Yeah, that one's almost the kiss of death for a a bow hunter. That's a tough – that's a really tough situation to to unwind. That's like the ultimate Rubik's Cube to (laughs) to solve because – and I think that happens – sometimes I've seen it happen here – especially in, in low bull-to-cow ratio areas, which are a lot of public land, wilderness areas, where the bull-to-cow ratio gets real low so that bull doesn't have a lot of competition because mm-hmm. he's the only 360 bull within 10-mile radius. He does, you know, no, no those smaller bulls, there aren't very many, but they're the ones, the few there are, are, are really not dominant at all. And so he doesn't have to sit and guard the cows 24-7. He can just go in to get his work done and go – go lay down, you know, uh, by himself and doesn't have to sit and, and run a tight ship. Yeah. That, that's a tough one to to, fi- to figure out. Absolutely. Well, and they, they know when those cows are in estrus and when they need to guard the herd and when they need to be in that breeding phase. And if, you know, that's where you hope to catch one of those lucky days is when he's going off, when he's got a cow he's trying to breed. But for the most part, yeah, he goes down and checks them at night and feeds with them and then goes off on his own. And I've looked at a... A lot of different herds that'll have some smaller six points in them and you don't see a big bull but you spend a couple days watching them and all of a sudden you'll see him show up and he'll be in there and cruise through them but yeah that those those older age class bulls those giant bulls that's that's why they're so tough to harvest yep yep and out in this area i hunted the one of the issues with it is is the elk the bulls have gotten smart over the years especially with the advent of the wolves in there as well as the you know hunting pressure and there's a lot of transition country in there. And so what's happened over the years is those elk, the bigger bulls, have learned to rut out in the open. They'll go way down in the lower country where they can see a long ways out in the open to rut. And then as soon as the rut's over, over they climb up and find the tightest, thickest, little isolated pocket to, to post-rut you know, before the winter. And so it's really tough because the bow season, they're out in the middle of the open. You know, they see you coming for two miles away and you can't bugle them away from the herd. And then, you know, by the time the rut's over rifle season, they've gone and found some pocket that unless you walk into them, it's almost impossible to even glass them up in it, you know, because they're they're really, really isolated in little bitty tight creek drainages or canyons where it's tough, tough, tough to find them. Yep, and they find those places that that are unpressured as well. And so they know there isn't much human traffic or that you can't glass it easily and they you know they don't know that we can glass or that we can see long distances. I don't mean that, but if they're on a feature that you can glass easily, then people will go in there and bust them and chase them out of there. And so then they start to learn this country and like you say they get in these tight timbered canyons and they'll feed in little avalanche chutes and they just don't show themselves with much daylight and they put away in that thick trees and in thick downfall and in those those tight canyons where it does it makes it really tough for a hunter to catch up to. Yeah, yeah, they start almost living like big buck deer, mm-hmm. you know, due toward the end of October. Just they find a nasty hole to to uh, hide in, and it's it it can be tough. But that's that's where uh, the challenge is, right? As hunters, we gotta gotta figure all that stuff out. That's what makes it exciting. Yeah, that's the fun of it, isn't it? Yep, yep. Yeah, no, I I love that. I love all phases of that hunting season. I love that pre-rut. You have a real good chance at a big bull looking for cows. Uh, you know, the right in the peak of that rut. You know, being immersed in elk country when they're going crazy and and you, it's just catching one of those days. You know, I think people try to judge that rut um, and they say, oh, they're not rutting that hard, but 
it, it really has to do with those cows coming into estrus. And I think it's it's peaks and valleys of that rut. And so even though you catch it on a day where they're not rutting really hard, a day or two later, they can be going off or you go to a different unit or across the highway and they're going off over there. And so that rut is really tough to judge as it's peaks and valleys. But I you just got to put in your time just like the late season and just hope you catch one of those good days where they're making a mistake where you can locate one and, and make a play on them. Yep. Yep, and and like you said, I think that's important. A lot of guys don't uh, underestimate that factor in the whole equation. They think, oh, the rut's over, or it's really slow rut today. But they it might be right there, but somewhere else it could be going off the hook. You know, and that that's kind of what happened on my elk hunt. Is we saw I shot the thirteenth six point bull we saw, and almost all the others were by themselves post rut feeding out in tight little creek drainages and canyons like we talked about. But my bull was with seven cows, and he was still rutting, bugling, doing his thing. You know, granted, he was we found him four or five miles away from all these others, but just because, you know, one set of elk is doing one thing doesn't mean the entire unit, everything's quiet or everything's over. I mean, you can find pockets of second cycle cows for whatever reason that didn't get a bull in there or, or whatever, and they could be popping off at the end of October. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. that second cycle can be really good. Um, and it it's just about catching those cows in estrus or catching the right spot. But, yeah, you just got to put in your time day after day in cruising country, and that's the way I like to think of it too is there is a bull elk rutting somewhere. There is a, <laughs> that giant bull that I'm looking for. He is somewhere rutting cows right now. I just have to find him. Yeah, my dad, you know, he used to, when he was a kid, as a job, he'd help feed the elk on the elk refuge in Jackson. In, here in Wyoming, and, and he said that uh, every year they would see bulls rutting cows, breeding cows, in December and January out there. Wow. For whatever reason, there'd be some wilderness cow that just never came into heat, you know, or didn't get bred for whatever reason, and I'm sure, you know, that cow would be, calf would probably be born so late and never survive the fall or winter, but, I mean, it they'll just keep going until every single one is bred, you know, so just because... The historic rut is the 15th of September doesn't mean it's all going to be over by the 10th of October. (laughs) That is wild. Yeah, on the winter range in December and January. So they must, and I know that second cycle estrus hits in October, but then if they don't get bred in October, then it must be like a 30-day cycle and they'd come in again in November. They must just keep coming in, you know, Uh until, until they get bred or or the next fall comes around. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I always, um, reading sign, like with those bulls on the winter range, they seem like they rub their horns as much, you know, on the winter range late as they do during the rut. Sometimes to decipher between those rubs, if they are actually happening during the rut or if they're happening during the winter range. Uh, I'm always trying to decipher that when I'm re- moving through the mountains and I find a bunch of scrapes and go, oh, this is going to be a great rutting spot. And then uh, you go in there during the rut and there isn't an elk for miles. It's a <laughs> late season spot. Yeah. Uh, but they rub quite a bit late too. I think trying to get their horns off or, uh, you know, I'm yeah. not sure. Just I the, think they get itchy. Yep. You know, when the ruts over and they're getting ready to uh, start to think about dropping them, they're tired of them, mm-hmm. trying to knock them off. Mm-hmm. I know antelope do that as well. I, you know, they'll go over to a fence and hook their horns in the fence and pull them off. Okay. You know, what if you ever – antelope horns don't stay on the ground very long because the mice and whatever eat them and the coyotes chew on them. But if you ever want to look for some, you just walk the fences mm-hmm. and they'll be right there on the ground. But I think elk and deer, same way, they get itchy, want to mm-hmm. pull them off. Yeah, you you uh, shoot some of those antelope late, and then you go to drag them or get them into a position for a picture and have that horn pop <laughs> off right in your hand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, that's fun. Um, yeah, uh, and, and you guys are getting a little break this year. Last year, you guys got hit hard by winter and uh, had some winter kill and some winter loss. Um, the elk sent tend to fare a little bit better than the deer but uh they're getting a break this year it's it's uh warm over here dang near tropical i think it's supposed to be 50 degrees today well, i know i should be fishing it's uh what middle of december and almost 50 degrees but that makes up for last year because by this time last year it was nasty mm-hmm. gnarly like like january and it never quit never oh, let up nope yep if I have to shovel my roof in Powell, Wyoming, 
with, from the snow, that's that's bad. <laughs> I'd say that's, that's a bad. That's winter. very rare. Yeah, that's very rare. I moved away from Jackson Hole, so I wouldn't have to do that anymore. But mm-hmm. but uh, that's what kind of winter we had last year. We lost a lot of deer, quite a few antelope. The elk fared okay. I mean, it seems like our elk herds are better than ever, mm-hmm. better than ever here. But the deer are really in the western part the higher elevation part of the state really suffered bad, mm-hmm. really got hammered. But I think it actually has helped a lot of our desert deer. Just like we predicted last year when we sat before the season, you know, they did get some, kill some really nice bucks in the desert units this year because mm-hmm. I think all that extra moisture and, and uh, you know, the, it helped the brush grow, the feed was good, the habitat was good for, for the next year. Yeah, well, the the drought is so bad for those drier southern uh, uh, states down there. But yeah, they've had a bunch of moisture, which is really good for the populations mm-hmm. down there. And yeah, they're doing great. I I wish I could draw one of those Ponsagant tags, or I've I've thought about hunting that strip too before with a bow. You can get a bow tag down there for the strip, which I yep. think would be fun to hunt. But it's a lot of water holes and a lot of uh, game cameras, and there's a lot of outfitters down there. But there's some giant deer. I want to do that one of these years. Yeah, my brother-in-law, of course, he's a resident of Arizona. He drew that strip tag this year, and he killed a 197-inch typical buck. I mean, just it's it's probably the best deer hunt in the country mm-hmm. if you can draw it mm-hmm. you know there's two areas there and very very few tags did he draw the the, rifle tag he drew the rifle, rifle tag, tag yeah. yeah and then they yeah. also have some muzzle loader tags too i think so yep um, the the bow hunt is is i mean you got a chance at those big big deer mm-hmm. but it's it's not easy yeah it's the first crack at them you yeah. know uh, before anybody harvests them but yeah they they definitely be tough down there and i know they're hunting them on a lot of water holes trail yep. cameras outfitters there's some pressure down there but one of these years i just got to pull the trigger and do it I mean, my problem is is i love hunting the high country and that's kind of been my niche is i've been able to find those trophy caliber deer and kind of get away from the pressure and so i focus on that high country stuff and that happens at the same date that that Arizona strip hunt would would happen and you just have to go in there with the right mindset that you're not going to see a ton of deer but you might find the one yeah. um, but it, it'd be tough for me to I'd be thinking the grass is greener on the other side that I need to be up at 10,000 feet somewhere well you'd be sitting at a water hole Brian wishing you were up at uh, 10,000 feet with no one around and and watching a big buck feed in one of those basins probably yeah yeah i think i've got (laughs) because it's a long ways down there it takes you two days to get down there two days to get home oh you're so right yeah that is a long drive one of these years i'll pull the trigger on it yeah i think for now i'll I'll stick to what i know and stick to the high country so i'm really looking forward to it i think i thought i was going to draw my colorado tag last year but i think i'll end up with it this year Thirteen thousand foot peaks and a lot of bigger bucks and no hunting pressure and so i'm really excited to get in there Colorado's they're pretty stingy on the draw as far as the point creep it just kills you down there sometimes I'm I'm always two points away from drawing my deer tag I don't know if I'll ever get it I've been chasing it for two points for the last six points it seems like (laughs) oh every place is getting that point creep I'm I'm seeing it here in Wyoming you know now I can I can uh you know I I love some of those western units there but I can hardly draw them now and then like you say you're just a point or two behind and it just keeps going to where you can never draw that tag. Yeah. When yeah. when they've decreased the quotas, that really kills that. Mm-hmm. That puts a point creep into serious overdrive. Mm-hmm. But I'm hoping as the deer are bouncing back in some of these states that they'll start increasing those quotas and the point creep will go the other way, swing the other way, especially for the bow guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, that just really is tough to live with point creep when you're a bow hunter. Jeez, that's really out of the ordinary. I know. Would you talk to Wyoming Game and Fish and have them put aside a bow-only season for deer for me? <laughs> I know. They don't have uh, have anything. They're definitely not real bow-friendly here. Mm-hmm. A little bit on the elk side of things, they but do. that's about it. Yeah. Well, and a lot of that's those elk it. units, you have to draw the rifle tag as well, right? Yep. 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 I think they have Type 9, which is the archery only. There, I think there's only like 12 or 13 uh, elk hunts that mm-hmm. are Type 9, and three or four of them are are not really that great so really good type nine areas you only got about a half a dozen i mean the choices are pretty pretty limited okay but there's a half a dozen good choices out there good units where they do offer that archery only tag yep yep Yep. but they're and they're pretty tough to draw honestly some of sometimes you'd be better off going in the type one draw with the rifle hunters and then bow hunt Mm -hmm. you have a lot less pressure 
Um, Dan, which you're going to talk to later, he did that this year. He went into one of the Type 9 and the Bighorns, and there was so much hunting pressure, so I'm never doing that again. I'll go, I'm going to go draw with the rifle guys because none of them really bow hunt, and I can have the bow season to myself. Mm-hmm. So he goes and draws the rifle tag, then hunts the bow season, and less than 10% of the, the people who draw that hunt with a bow so you got a hundred tags you got less than 10 people out there bow hunting with you you go out here in the bighorns there's a hundred bow tags every one of those guys is hunting during bow season because that's the only season they can hunt so it actually is kind of a kind of a sucker play for the bow guys that makes sense so yeah Yeah. like you say when you draw that rifle tag you you know and and rifle can be just as tough as bow uh as those elk get in those pockets like we're talking about it seems like the challenge is more locating a good bull where bow season you spend more time hunting them but that's a great point that you draw that rifle tag and a lot of those guys are waiting till rifle season to go hunt elk and hunt bulls and so you've only got 10 percent of that population that are actually hunting with a bow and then so you so you got 10 guys out of 100 that are hunting with a bow, so you have less pressure, and you can really take advantage of that as yeah. a bow guy. And the elk, you know, the elk aren't used to being bow hunted hard. Mm-hmm. You know, they're used to, they're, you go out there, and those rut, during the rut in those units, those elk are rutting and doing elk things and being elk. You go over the bighorns, they have 100 bow tags in a unit every year, and they're getting pounded on for a month during the rut, and those elk act different. You know, they're, they're, they know they're being hunted. They're being pushed around, bumped around by a hundred guys versus over in this unit, hundred tags, but only 10 guys are bow hunting. Those elk, you know, they're acting a little different. They're more, more vocal out there a little later in the morning, coming out earlier in the evening, less nocturnal, like we talked about, less out in the wide open, more in the little parks, meadows, and basins where you can have a pretty good, uh, chance of getting a good stock and and i would say that honestly if you're a bow hunter you draw a type one and hunt in the bow season it's a higher quality experience than going in the type nine route with all the rest of the bow hunters okay that's kind of one of a, a little secret for uh for wyoming i mean most states have bow rifle seasons uh wyoming's a little different where they put everybody in one pool for the most part that way but well, I'm taking notes. I've got my points in Wyoming. I'm going to get down here eventually to hunt elk. Um, but that was a really good point you made about elk and high pressure. And I've been hunting, I hunt a bunch of different units in Montana there, but I've been focused on this high pressure unit. And I was seeing these giant bulls in there and I'm still seeing giant bulls and good bulls. And I tend to get a good six point out of there every year. But um, those high pressure elk, they just act different. They just, um, they look for you more. They'll catch movement more. They're just, they're on edged and switched on more and they're not in their, their natural environment or their natural uh, uh, patterns as far as the rut. They, they, um, so I, I think it's important if you can find an elk spot where they're lower pressure. And I know this year I hunted a lot of wilderness with buddies. And then I hunted this higher pressure in the central part of the state and the elk just act different. You can get away with way more moving on them, uh, making plays on them. They're just not as wary and not as switched on. And so, yeah, I think I'm going to change elk units, um, next year there in Montana and, uh, and Montana's producing some great bulls. You were showing me some statistics as we got talking before the podcast. How many Boone and Crockett elk did you say came out of Montana? In the last five years, Montana's put 51 Boone and Crockett elk in the all-time record book. Arizona put 35. That is so incredible. I don't Montana think a lot of guys know really that. really is coming up. You know, when you sit and do these stats like we do here, and I, I get kind of paralysis from the analysis you can sit and bury yourself in all these statistics and and you know drive yourself crazy but one thing you try to glean out of this is okay what are certain trends from state to state doing right now because you definitely don't want to be when you're applying living in 10 years ago's stats if you did you'd be all over utah and arizona like crazy well guess what they've changed their management strategy down there quite a bit over the last five ten years utah arizona nevada they're not managing for those ultra high uh age class bulls anymore they don't they're not managing for eight-year-old bulls they're managing for six and seven-year-old bulls so that means more tags into those seasons Mm -hmm. still great elk hunts but they're not you know utah's not rewriting 
the record book like they were when they were killing 10, 12, 15, 400 inch bulls a year down there. They're maybe killing one or two now, you know. So Arizona, Nevada, Utah are kind of on a down downward cycle. I mean, if you're looking for the biggest of the big, okay, mm-hmm. and states like Wyoming and Montana are on the up, headed the other way, you know. And so it's it you know changes from you know year to year, decade to decade. And Montana is really on an upswing as far as big bulls. I don't know what the overall population, the whole state is doing, but the quality of bulls is going way up. Mm-hmm. Population seem to be doing really well um, also. And then, so that was my question to you is I said, well, why is Montana and Wyoming doing so well with their elk and their, their trophy quality when we're not really managing for trophy quality there? And, and uh, your answer to me was that the, the private land is managing for, for trophy quality for us. <laughs> the... The state, and I do feel bad for those guys when I say the state, the game and fish departments, and whether it's Montana, Wyoming, Idaho. They got a tough job. They have a tough job because they're kind of caught in the middle. They, 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 technically, they own all the wildlife, or they manage it for the people of the state who own it, the residents. And they are in between a rock and a hard place in that they have, you know, these hunters screaming for one thing, the private land owners screaming for another thing, the the insurance companies for the vehicles who get all the bills for everybody hitting deer and elk on the highway, screaming for something else, the environmentalists wanting something different, the pro wolf and grizzly bear people wanting something. I mean, they are really in the middle of a no win situation. And so, so I do feel bad for them, but I think in States like Montana for sure. And Wyoming to some degree and Colorado to some degree, the, the private landowners are doing the tough work for the state in that they're actually managing a lot of the trophy top quality animals now for the state Mm -hmm. through access is how it's being done, being managed, whether people like it or not. A lot of the biggest bulls in Montana are running around in low public land areas. You know, I, I heard a stat one time, and I, I, I believe it's true. I've not verified this 100%, but the, oh, oh, close to 70% of the elk in Montana reside on private property. That's a stat. That'll blow you away. <laughs> that, that does, so, doesn't it? Yes. They, they just learned a refuge on there where they don't get pressured and where they don't get chased. But where we can take advantage of it is where they're working the edges and where they're crossing through and the 30% that do live on there. And the, the good thing is, is that, you know, those those things are breeding and carrying on those genetics and living to those older age class. And so we get to benefit from a lot of it. And and you're right. These states are in, in such a tough spot trying to keep everybody happy. And in Montana, they may not manage for for trophy quality everywhere we have a few units that are known for producing trophies but um you know they manage for a lot of opportunity for us locals to be able to have an elk tag every year and be able to fill our freezer and so you know they're they're just they're looking out for other interests and 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 trying to appease uh, a large different groups of people to to make for the the best game management that they can come up with. So they are in a tough spot, but you're right that private land is is doing the management for us where they're producing a lot of these trophies. And that's 52 Boone and Crockett all-time record books uh, for Montana in the last five years. That is crazy. Yes. Yeah, that is, that's quite a statistic. And, you know, the states have also come up with more complex uh, management strategies, which is more work for them. Like mm-hmm. Wyoming, when I was a kid, they just managed for elk. Elk were elk. Didn't matter. Go out there, any sex, kill a cow, kill a bull, whatever. We don't care. Here's the seasons. Let's just keep this population in check. It was a one line item for each area. Well, now they're, you know, it's way more complicated. They're managing the bulls for bulls, the cows for cows. You know, we have cow hunts, bull hunts three or four different cow hunts in a lot of these areas, you know, where they're trying to manage both the population, you know, for opportunity for the guys who want to fill their freezer and then quality somewhat for the guys who want, you know, to kill a nice bull, mature mm-hmm. bull. So well, they're it's paying, more work on their end. It is more work. And they're, they're uh, breaking it down better to manage it per unit in, in smaller areas. They're not managing for the entire state or the entire region, which I think is really good. Paying attention yep. to bull to cow and populations and, and trying to be proactive and make moves, you know, when populations dip or when populations are on the rise. Yep. 
Yep, and I think that you know when you're doing your applications, it's always good to to do your best to understand in each state what is going on with the overall population and quality. Where are the quality bulls? You know, historically, you can tell where they came from, but that doesn't mean that's what's happening right now. You know, I want to go where there's going to be a big bull this fall, not where there was one 20 years ago someone killed. You know what I mean? It's like fishing. You know, you don't want to go fish the hole someone already caught a 10-pound brown out of. I want to find the hole there's still a 10-pound brown in. You know, and so you got to kind of try to predict as best you can where there's going to be a big bull to chase and not where there was one last year, you mm-hmm. know, because that one's gone. Current trends rather yes. than looking at historical trends. And yes. historical trends are good information to it's have. a good place to start. Exactly. But, yeah, looking for those current trends and trying to be – in in front of that is yep. is the key to harvesting big critters but uh yep. yeah that montana they have this new bow tag and it's been out for the last couple of years that i'm thinking about taking advantage of but they have 15 different units in it it's that 900 tag and some really good units that are really sought after for rifle tags that are good bow units but you get to hunt all these special units throughout Montana. That one's really caught my eye. I'd like to, I'd like to check that out and uh, learn some of those units that you just don't get the chance because they are special draws for bow and arrow. But now they've lumped it all together, where you get 15 of these units all in one tag in some great mountain ranges. So yes. that's kind of piqued my interest. Yep, yep. Well, Montana's—they've been changing their changing it up quite a bit up there especially when it comes to the bow hunters and you know they have a strong contingency of resident bow hunters that kind of politic the game and fish to to do you know some management specifically for the bow guys which Mm -hmm. wyoming doesn't have that's why we have the seasons we do is we don't have a real strong advocacy group for just bow hunters pushing the game and fish to do archery only opportunities you know, here. So each state's a little different. Yeah, I know our uh, Montana Bow Hunters Association is a is a great. Um, they do a lot of the lobbying for us for archery yep. seasons, and so I always like to support those state-run uh, bow hunting um, agencies as they as they push for a lot of our seasons and a lot of these tags, and they're really looking out for the for the best interest for us bow hunters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, looking to hunt there, change it up. Um, We've also, our deer populations are doing really good in Montana. Now, we definitely don't uh, manage for for trophy deer there, but we are getting, we have some good genetics there. And so I saw one come out of the northwest part of the state up there um, that went like 225 this year. They grow some big, dark, heavy horned deer up there. There's a couple mountain ranges up there I really like. Uh, The 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 bob can produce them the missions the cabinets some of that stuff up in that northwest corner they're tough to hunt up there but they're really big heavy deer and i know the state record you know at least the state record bobuck is running around up there i've seen them before right yeah. <laughs> yeah i think it's a lot of the almost like canadian bucks you know genetics that are up in that that corner but i think you know the deer in montana are doing really well i mean the wyoming's deer are on the down montana's deer are on the up I mean, I hunted in eastern. I've hunted in eastern Montana for a long, long time, and I probably saw as many deer this year, just total quantity, as I've seen in 20 years out there. Yes. I mean, oh, they're doing so good out there, aren't exploding. they? It's exploding. Yeah, we I mean, killed my dad his biggest buck this year out there. And uh, his biggest buck to date, 180-inch deer, just a gorgeous deer. And then we got my uncle, his best deer to date down there. And the populations are doing so good. But I, I'm seeing a lot of those older age class deer, those five, six-year-old deer that you're yep. really looking to harvest that grow those heavier horns. And, yeah, we're we're seeing them down there. I harvested a good one with my bow down there. So, yeah, it's um, our populations are doing really well in Montana and producing some really nice bucks. Yeah, I mean, a couple – couple more good years we always seem like we always sit here every year saying this but a few more good years up there and it's going to be off the chart i mean the last two or three years the fawn crop has been outstanding and i think there's getting to be enough deer that those deer those older deer like you're talking about slip through the cracks mm-hmm. you know to get one more year one more year on them and uh, that can be a huge difference when you have enough volume of deer that a lot of those four-year-old bucks can slip to five and six mm-hmm that's that's what you need to yeah. start producing those really nice ones. 
Absolutely. And um, we didn't get the tough winter that you guys got here in Wyoming mm. or Idaho or Colorado. Now, those those states took a hit on their deer numbers. They're on a downward yeah. trend like you were talking now. I know I, I hunted Idaho this year. Um, it, it was tough to find quality bucks there in that early high country. Um, you know, and I don't know Idaho is my first year hunting Idaho for deer, but I did uh, two or three different scouting missions. I just couldn't find the numbers or the quality I was looking for and, and finally able to find some uh, in a mountain range there on the on the west side and, and started finding some bucks and able to harvest a real nice one. But it, it seemed like it was tough down there for me. Uh, Idaho's a, it's kind of a, it's a tough state to learn. Uh, the deer are real pocketed there. But it, it can produce huge deer. I mean, yep. it, it looks historically, going back to our historical conversation, it's the only state that even holds a candle to Colorado mm-hmm. as far as big mule deer yeah. historically. And, you know, it was down, down, down for so many years, so many years. But it's kind of started to bump up a little. Um, but they have so much deer habitat there. The whole state is pretty conducive to mule deer mm-hmm. from top to bottom, east to west, Uh but you got to find, you know, Wyoming, our good deer are real pocketed. So when you find the honey holes, they're they're juicy and rich. Mm-hmm. Idaho, it seems like they're spread out. Like there's, here's a huge mountain range. There may be three good bucks in the whole thing. You know, you're not going to go into their basins generally and find 30 bucks or 20 bucks and half a dozen big ones like you can in western Wyoming. That's you know. exactly what I found. Yeah. And, and like you were saying, they're found in, in – uh, uh, all throughout that state, those big deer come from everywhere in Idaho, yes. east, west, north, south. It's uh, yep. pretty much throw a dart on the map, and and you could find a big mule deer there. Yeah, yeah. I mean we'll get them in the in the magazine. We get stories. You'll get some giant two hundred and ten inch typical from the lava country. Mm-hmm. You know that desert lava country down south, and then the next year we're getting one from the high mountain sawtooth you know in the center of the state some big 240 non-typical and then once in a while we'll get one of those big old pumpkin-headed bucks from the the panhandle up north Mm -hmm. like you were talking the montana country that that big uh timbered out clear-cut country and you get a big dark horn buck that's it's real heavy and black horn, just beautiful, beautiful bucks. Mm-hmm. It drives me nuts because I can't put my finger on that yeah. state because they come from everywhere across there. I guess you just got to put in your time and learn some good deer country and habitat and go looking for those big bucks. But I know down there deer hunting, I saw a lot of elk down there. And those elk just fare better in those tough winters. Uh, but their elk populations look like they're doing really well. And I, I think I might do an elk hunt in there next year. I saw enough big bulls to kind of spark my interest to hunting them down there in, in multiple different units that were all over the counter general tag units. And so I'm pretty interested in that. I, I know I saw a couple good bulls down there. Yeah. I think their, their elk populations are starting to come back again. Like the deer, they were so low for so many years because of the wolves. I mean, Idaho probably got the worst of the wolf situation for sure. They did. Cause there's so much big, uh, desolate country in there where they just couldn't control them. They just had free reign on those elk. Yep, yeah. yep. There was there was very very diff, and it's still very difficult for them to control them. I mm-hmm. mean, there's there's such vast remote wildernesses areas in Idaho that they can't they can't control those wolf populations. But I think that that some of the other areas where they can control it, the th- those population elk populations are starting to come back starting to come back and i think that's uh, everywhere out west with exception maybe wyoming because we couldn't hunt the wolves for so many years although we are again now you know we had so many years where the historic elk areas dropped so down so low and then we started to see good elk populations in non-traditional areas like eastern montana central wyoming the more desert country those elk populations kind of exploded and now the wolves are under control and so the wilderness elk are starting to come back and so i think it's going to be good good for the elk hunting elk hunters and elk hunting in the next 10 years as as the populations in both traditional and non-traditional elk areas increase especially with with these tough winters we've had, which is good, you know, good, uh, ends up being good moisture, habitat improvements. I think we're going to see another resurgence in explosion of elk populations in the next, next 10 years. I'm hoping. 
Yep. Won't and be good for the deer necessarily. I know. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's just what the deer need more elk, right? Yeah. Well, and I think those states that we've talked about, that Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, I think those are good states to focus on. As those Nevada and Utah, Arizona, New Mexico tags, they're, they're tougher to draw. And like you were talking about, they're not managing for that older age class where now you draw a tag that takes you 10 to 15 years to apply for. And you may not be chasing the big bulls that you're, that you're dreaming about. But I think those are the states to focus on now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And most of the elk, when it comes to elk hunting, for sure, most of the opportunity is in the northern states. The four key states, I call them, which is Wyoming, Idaho, Montana, Colorado. Yeah, I left out Colorado. Yeah, Those right. four states probably account for, I would say, 70 to 80% of the big game hunting out west when it comes to deer and elk, just because they have so many more tags. You know, the hunting's not necessarily better there than Arizona or Utah or Nevada or New Mexico, but they have so much more opportunity that most guys spend... 80 70 to 80 percent of their time in those states and then waiting to draw one of those desert states in the southwest to, to get that experience because i mean you know those arizona tags for archery elk you're talking 10 to 15 years yep to go into those you know elk uh, wyoming Idaho, wyoming montana especially if you're a bow hunter three to five mm-hmm. for non-resident so it's a that's a whole different different world when you're waiting three to five years for a tag versus 15 yep and, and it would it don't get me wrong it's a fun experience to go hunt them down there and i want to go hunt them down there as, as bad as the next guy but yeah you just gotta bide your time until you can get a tag down there and you want to get a worthwhile tag if you're gonna draw one down there yeah it's so far away and it's so foreign and you have to put so much effort into it that you just want to make sure it's going to be a good experience when you get down there so yeah just gotta bide your time and yeah i left out colorado colorado they're doing great. Their elk populations are really high, and they're producing some really good bulls too. Yes, their their quality is is doing you know better and better. It's on year. the rise. It it's used to rise. be a bunch of smaller bulls in mm-hmm. Colorado, is how I kind of thought of it. But now, you know, I'm starting to see uh, a lot more mature bulls as as I'm down there deer hunting and different things and looking around, and also seeing a bunch more. Uh, come across my feet in different places too. A good Colorado bulls, and just talking to guy, and the overall feeling to me uh, just seems like they're growing some more mature bulls nowadays. Yeah, they, you know, for years they kind of just Colorado was an elk volume state. They wanted lots of elk, lots of opportunity. We're, you know, they didn't care too much about the age class. They just wanted people to to shoot bulls. You have to, they have to have a brow tine to shoot them, so you can't shoot spikes there. You know, and most they're over the counter. Uh, areas anyway and so you know that's just kind of what they managed for and they had a few trophy areas in the northwest corner like three or four of them two 201 10 four i think four or five units there and they were all they've gotten almost impossible to draw but what's happened is they've started to to kind of branch out with their their older age class uh, management and, and try to manage or starting to manage in some of the other areas in the state to kind of i think to take some of the pressure off those northwest units because they're so hard to draw so they've started you know sprinkling a few other you know good units throughout the state that are that are really starting to produce good bulls i mean the genetic was always there but now they're just with a little bit of management and uh and some tlc on some of those units they've, they've really started to produce some some good bulls i mean a a 350 class bull in colorado is definitely possible this day and age no no question about it and in a lot of different units whereas 15 years ago it, it, that was a you know that was a real oddity a 350 if it didn't come from that northwest corner yes exactly you know, right so, so it's you know elk hunting overall i say elk hunting's in in great shape it's mm-hmm. as good as as it ever has been things have changed and moved around a little but if you're an elk hunter this is a good time to be alive. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I know. I know you live and die to elk hunt. That's uh, well, and deer hunt. I guess you you're a deer fanatic as well. Yep. And there's a the the deer. 
Um, you know, it may be tough to draw an elk tag in that Nevada and Utah, but boy, those deer are sure doing good in those states. Yes. Yeah. I I am going to get a Nevada tag this year. I will myself to do it, but I'm going to be a little bit more aggressive with my, my tag application this year in Nevada and put in for some of these easier to draw tags. You know, I thought the one that I was hunting was pretty easy to draw, but after the last couple of years of not having a tag, uh, and they, in Nevada, they um, the way they do their drawing process is that you put down five um, you put down five units and then they try they pick your your name out and they try to assign you all five of those units and then they throw out your application and so you actually have five choices you can put down that you have a legit chance at drawing yeah yeah that is a unique thing of Nevada and they square the points yep um, so you have a, a chance even if it's your first time putting in or if you've been doing it for 20 years i mean everybody has at least a statistic statistical chance of drawing one of those tags and nevada's you know up and comer utah is you know we kind of i bagged a little bit on utah's elk population and and it has slid a little bit okay if utah was 10 years ago was a 10 out of 10 it might be an eight now it slid maybe 20 percent but their deer hunting has probably tripled in quality so what they've lost a little bit in elk, they have gained leaps and bounds in deer hunting, uh, deer population, quality, all of the above. They are really producing some really nice bucks in Utah. And Utah is really bow hunter friendly, as you know. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity down there for, for big bucks with a bow. Yes. And that that Wasatch sits like above that salt lake and, and not to put everybody in one mountain range because the all of all of Utah can be really good, but that Wasatch boy, that that place just produces giant bucks year after year. And for a bow hunter, they let you hunt it early and then let you hunt it late during the rut. So with one tag, you know, you can hunt it in November and then you can also hunt it in that early season of August. And and the tough thing there is is kinda you know, those deer like we talked about high pressure elk, those are kind of high pressure deer and they know that the hunt is on them and so they tighten up their program even in that early alpine environment um so you so you really gotta you, you gotta sit behind your glass and watch those things do your homework scouting but that place produces big bucks and then that that southern end of the state is is really they don't have any of the big mountain ranges that i really love to hunt but they've got so many big deer down there that i just can't resist i gotta go down there and go try it yeah, yeah, I'd like to get, I keep putting in, so one of these days I'm going to draw down there, but it it really is, you know, there's that that little section of deer heaven there that's northern Arizona, southern Utah, oh, yeah. and kind of what, eastern Nevada that is is just, I don't, you look at it and it, to maybe just from coming up north, because it doesn't look like great deer habitat to me. I'm too used to mountain ranges and basins and that kind of thing, but it really is built for big deer well, that's for whatever the, reason. And those mule deer can live and thrive in so many different habitats from that high country and, and uh, the deer that we're used to hunting. But then down there, um, it seems like it was kind of that elk country we were talking about where it's um, uh, a lot of rolling hills, thick cover. Uh, it's like a high desert down there, but they seem to thrive in that country too. And yeah, that Pontagon, gosh, if a guy could ever get a tag from there, that place produces so many big bucks. It's just crazy down there. Yeah, yeah. it really does. And they have some really favorable seasons. You know, the bow seasons are nice and early. The rifle seasons are, are in October. It's a little tougher, but they have some really prime muzzleloader seasons down there in the rut in November and December, which are really, really lights out. Mm-hmm. And then they see bucks then that they've never seen before roll in or come out of the woodwork kind of thing. And so, yeah, Utah is really – I think Utah, one of the things down there is they have really avid hunters and outdoorsmen and real vocal, and they really – their game and fish down there in Utah really listens to that hunting constituency, whether it's – rifle muzzleloader bow hunters or whoever and they they do a really good job or in the last 10 years have done a good job of of listening to the sportsmen of the state and really doing the best that they have with the resource they have you mm-hmm. know i mean they don't have they have a lot of public land down there but they don't necessarily have you know oodles of great elk habitat like a state like colorado or wyoming or montana does and, you know they they're more concentrated they have 
very few mountain ranges, more desert, open desert country, but they have really maximized their hunting opportunity for what the resource they have. Mm-hmm. I've been really impressed with some of the things that have, have gone on down there. Absolutely. And I give all that credit to the sportsmen of Utah. I mean, they, they don't let the state, you know, they don't let the state off the hook easy. You mm-hmm. know, they make them do the hard work, you know, mm-hmm. sheep transplants, keep the sheep population growing, get mountain goats grow. I mean, everything they push and push and push on mm-hmm. the states or the state to keep, you know, the hunters in mind and sportsmen in mind where, other states like Colorado, they're just, it's a political mess there because mm-hmm. you have Denver, just, you know, the people in Denver trying to, to manage, you know, with, with, uh, not the hunters at, in mind. Yes. You know, they want as many cougars as they can. They want to introduce wolves now. You know I mean? It's the crazy <laughs> they're out of their mind. Yeah. yeah. They have no uh, idea what they're doing. Well, and I thought that was a really good move that Utah did. It's been three or four, maybe even five years ago, where they separated out all the deer units and made them all special draw and pick mm-hmm. your unit. And that way they could manage each unit and they put their biologists to work. I mean, they you go on their website and the information they have on there from, from buck to doe numbers, uh, doe to fawn, uh, bucks over four point harvested, they gather a lot of information to try to manage those deer as, as good as they can or all their game populations as good as they can. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they're, they're really... Um, they're really the example for these Western states. They've done a really good job with their management. I think so. I think so. I mean, they, they do not l- allow the, the biologists to get lazy mm-hmm. in that state. You know, they make them go out and do the hard work and not take shortcuts and do the studies. And everything they do has the sportsmen in mind. Mm-hmm. You know, why I think some states, Wyoming can be like this, Montana definitely is, Colorado is, where the biologists end up spending all their time and money studying some Tweety bird <laughs> and instead of, you know, really spending time on deer and elk populations that bring in the money that runs the department. They get sidetracked on these side projects instead of, you know, dealing with the uh, the, the animals that that pay the bills yeah the sage grouse in montana they um they cut down like i was in one of my spots in eastern montana and they cut down all the timber in there to manage for the sage grouse and it's sagebrush as far as the eye can see and that that timber is such great deer habitat that they're taking away those those deer in that open country they need that cover to hide in um so yeah it drove me nuts this year when i started reading about it and reading why they were cutting down all those tracks of small trees and it was for to build more sagebrush grouse habitat that's just crazy (laughs) (laughs) oh man there's plenty of sage grouse habitat there's just no sage grouse in it i mean i know it it's uh yeah sometimes some of the things these guys do just makes you shake your head right it does yep um yeah they're they're trying to make so many different groups happy i realize that but yeah that one frustrated me (laughs) in my favorite muley spot and they cut down all my timber where those muleys (laughs) like to be (laughs) so you know then you don't find the populations in there anymore they need the habitat to to be able to thrive in there um but yeah for the for the most part i know they're they're trying to do the right thing one and some of those, um, I also like just to talk a little bit about those southern states for guys that are in there. That New Mexico, um, boy, they have some good elk hunts down there. Um, and then I also like a lot of their mule deer hunts on the northern border, just like we were talking about Arizona and that northern border of Arizona. It's also doing well on that northern border of New Mexico. And a lot of that is from those those Colorado deer migrating down. But I know I've done those late hunts down there with a bow. Um, those can really produce some some trophy mule deer down there. Yeah, New Mexico is kind of a wild card. I, I kind of, you know, obviously group it in with the desert southwest states, but it's kind of an outlier in that it's they don't have a lot of money for their game and fish department in New Mexico. Um, the state in general just doesn't have a lot of money like states like Arizona does. So they're kind of like Wyoming in that they don't have a lot of, of residents. They don't have a, lo- a lot of population in New Mexico. Um, they have some real oddball habitat, you know, because it's, it's deserty. But a lot of that state is actually good elk habitat, and a lot of it is pretty good deer habitat, you know. And so they kind of manage kind of by the seat of their pants because they're underfunded. 
but it can be a really good outlier state to to you know kill a really big bull or a big buck in once you learn it i mean it's there's not a lot of data to analyze in new mexico because they just don't have the money to do a lot of the the refined data collection and and hunter success and and stuff that a lot of the other states like wyoming and montana do but if you can understand learn new mexico there's a lot lot that can be had down there it's it's kind of like the wyoming of the desert southwest mm-hmm. well and if you don't have any points that's a great state to be yep. applying in because they don't do any point system down there yep like idaho and new mexico are the only western states it's straight up old school just draw mm-hmm. just put your name in the hat everybody has the same chance yeah there's you know they, they do have a resident draw and then you know they they split out the non-residents and the guided non-residents so they do have you know uh quotas different inside the pools for the the tags but you know it's for the most part it's straight up draw Mm -hmm. even the sheep no points everybody just puts in Mm -hmm. so it's kind of it's it's a great state to really concentrate on if you're just new to the game and you don't have preference points elsewhere idaho and new mexico are good states to really concentrate on why you gather some some points in wyoming and colorado yeah absolutely yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate your insight and your time. You can find all this information and more in our MRS section. So that members research supplement is in our magazine. Um, you guys do a great job of breaking that down um, to, to really, I mean, I've used that as a tool over the last 10 years to be able to find out where the population's you know, which units are going to be quality units and, and, uh, the, our information is so up to date every year, but I mean, you could, you could pretty much pick a unit. There's a lot of information to gather, but from our MRS, you could pretty much just use that to hunt these States that you're not familiar with. So you you do just such a great job with that. Well, thank you. Yeah. We, it's a lot of work. I'm in fact, just working on Wyoming elk right now, finishing it up because it's, it's deadline is January 31st for Apple for non-residents. Yeah, and it's just so. such a great breakdown where you can look at quality rifle tags, quality bow tags, quality muzzleloaders tags, and then also look at, you know, we break down the terrain between uh, uh, rough terrain or um, how, how tough the hunt's going to be, how much public land is there, how much wilderness is in there, uh, which counties are the, the Boone and Crockett trophies coming from. Um, there's just so much great information. It's such a great resource. And so um, it, it only goes out to our subscribers, but uh, that is a great thing that we do here at the magazine. I'm really proud of that thing. Yeah, I am too. It's a, it's a good value for 25 bucks. Oh, know, I'd especially say. when you're dumping thousands of dollars into these these application draws. Worth its weight in gold. And we yeah. actually have the new book out, so yep. I'm going to try to steal one of these when I leave here. But the book has all that information compiled in it from the entire year. And so you don't have to go back and look for issue 165 to look at Colorado Elk. It's all compiled in a book. Uh, great photos in that book. Uh, great write-ups. And so that, that book, now you could get that even for Christmas present coming up. Up, right? Yep, yep. It's uh, I think it's under fifty bucks. It's a f- all four color, really high quality product. It's three hundred and eighty pages or something like that. It's almost four hundred pages, all four color, uh, bound under hardcover. It's a really high quality book. But like you said, the most important thing is it, it puts all the states under one cover. Everything for Wyoming in the Wyoming section. You know, Wyoming has three different draw deadlines. So in the magazine, they're in three different issues. But this book puts it all in one place mm-hmm. at your fingertips at any time to just flip open and, and check. Mm-hmm. And I, I notice when I'm at shows talking to guys, I, I'll wear one of these out in a show season, just flipping to the page and showing, you know, guys, you know, they'll ask me a question about such and such elk area in Wyoming, for instance, I can just open right to that page and show them, you know, it, you know, that elk area where its strength and weaknesses are, mm-hmm. you know, it's great quality hunt, but you know, big bulls, Favorable seasons, low quota, but there's a lot of private land. I mean, you can, you know, just run through those columns or those rows and those charts and tell where an area's strength and weaknesses are. 
I'm the same way. I wear out one of those books in a year from flipping pages and showing yeah. buddies and, and uh, Mark in different states and, and different information. But it's fun to look through. It's a fun time of the year where we're planning for all our 2018 hunts. And there's so many great adventures out there that a guy can do on a on a blue-collar budget and go to some of these western states and experience some of this, this great deer hunting and great elk hunting that they have to offer and all that information is compiled in that book and in our in our mrs section so yep. just a great job we do with that uh, um and, and thanks again for your time and your insight a fun conversation as always guy well thanks for having me on brian look yep. forward to the next time all right guys that's a wrap um like i say always fun sitting down with guy just such a wealth of knowledge um I always tease that he's like the oracle of Western hunting, but he really is. He's just got uh, so such a great knowledge base and such a great elk hunter and deer hunter and, and antelope as well. And, and uh, I just always like picking his brain. I always learn something when I'm, when I'm talking to Guy, and uh, he's just got some great stories as well. So really fun episode. Thanks to Guy for sitting down and uh, recording the podcast. Uh, sponsor for today's show again is uh, Yeti Coolers. Uh, thanks to those guys for sponsoring in 2018. It's just a, a great company. They build the best products on the market. Uh, I'm using them all the time, and I can't say enough good things about them. So thanks to Yeti um, over there at Eastman's. Be on the lookout for that guy's top five uh, Wyoming elk choices. Um, again, he's uh, you know he's not following the historic elk hunting spots these are current trends his current five spots for this next season um, with the conditions that we're having so be on the lookout for that uh, in email form or you can search it on the eastman's hunting journal website um boy with that uh just getting home here that arizona trip uh, man was that a fun trip just absolutely off the hook fun um able to harvest a javelina and uh, close on coos just couldn't put it together i got some good plays um, saw some just trophy coos deer, uh, soaked up some sunshine. I mean, it couldn't have been any better trip, you know, other than maybe harvesting a coos, but, um, to be able to hike around that desert with my bow, uh, and spend it with my good buddy, Danny, such a great hunting partner. Uh, the 10 days just absolutely flew by. I wish I could be out there for 10 more, but, uh, maybe next year. Um, but just, uh, really fun hunting down there. Um, Man, can't say enough good things about it. Uh, just an awesome experience. So I'm just kind of uh, reflecting on that, getting home here, getting this podcast out here. Still got to unpack all my stuff and put that away and laundry and um, play that game. But uh, the stuff gets put away for a little while now. Next season up is bear season. So I'm really going to get focused on my training and preparation and, and really focus on um, tags and applications of where I'm going to be applying and and uh, try to end up with uh, some good adventure hunts for 2018. So it's a real exciting season. Uh, can't wait for, well, I guess things have already kicked off for me. I was going to say I can't wait for things to kick off, but they already have. I've already done my first hunt of, of 2018. Um, so, yeah, I just um, I, I can't wait. It's such a... It's such a fun passion to have in this this Western bow hunting. Um, it just seems like you're always thinking about the next adventure you're going to go on, uh, you know, as well as living in the moment and, and enjoying the hunts that you that you go on. But um, just a, a really fun time of year. Uh, I can't wait to to see what 2018 brings. So um, with that, uh, sitting on a couple good podcasts. I got some good guests coming up. Um, so I'm going to keep recording. I'm going to do one on this Arizona hunt. Um, it, it's about coos, but really it's going to be about, uh, Western adventure hunting, um, and just talk about our trials and tribulations and, uh, you know, uh, some of the mistakes we made and, and, uh, uh things we did right. And, um, it, it should be a really fun podcast. So I'm going to drive up to Dan's here, um, drive up maybe Saturday and then we'll sit down and record that podcast. So that'll be a fun one. So be on the lookout for that. And uh, with that, um, that's the episode. I'll check in with you guys next week. Uh, thanks, as always, for the support. I really appreciate it, guys.